Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Paul Quentin. And welcome to our 50th, motherfucker, we have 50 episodes of the Nauticast, entitled Because That's What Heroes Do. An analysis of a Game of Thrones Arya form, which poor Arya Stark has to run for her life, but not before seeing her mentor, Ciro Farrell, go down like the badass that he is. And man, is he ever the badass in this chapter. Even more so than usual. Yeah, I've been hyping up this chapter for quite some time. It's a favorite of mine, so I'm glad you all can be here to witness me blubber over it. Oh my gosh, it's going to be such a fantastic chapter. Like, I've been looking for this chapter for... Months now, like I, I remember last week we were talking about how Eddard 14 was the chapter that I was really excited about getting to, but Aria 4 is a very close second in terms of chapters when we started this podcast that I was very, very excited to get into because this chapter is phenomenal, as we're going to talk about here. Eddard 14 is the big one in terms of plot, but Aria 4 <laughs> in character terms, I think, is the big climax, yeah. Oh man, it's going to be so great narrating all of Cyril Pharrell's lines in this chapter, I can't wait. Every single one. Every goddamn line of his. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council. Our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Word of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael. By the way, I love that that name, Ragged Michael. So if you ever come become a part of our small council, come up with a fucking badass name like Ragged Michael. Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, and Lord Jean, Master of Coin. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, as always, counselors, and I share my co-host's love of colorful adjectives. Come up with them, <laughs> folks. Do some work. Oh, yeah, you guys got to do work here. So our spoiler room is saying in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So our question this week, more of a comment, comes from Lady Yvonne, a sworn sword, who had a comment about some of our past coverage of Septim Ordain worth highlighting. Hi guys, I'm fairly new to your podcast and I enjoy it immensely. I'm only now listening to Arya 1 and I thought about what you said about Septim Ordain. I think you misunderstand the consequences that her position as Septa of two young ladies has and are therefore too harsh on her character. It is a Septa's job not only to oversee a lady's education, but also to oversee her behavior and to guarantee her virginity and faithfulness to her future husband. If she fails in this, she will be severely punished by the faith, as we can see with Marjorie's Septa after she is taken into custody by the faith. For Septim Ordain, Arya's behavior is probably a harbinger of bad deeds in the future. When Arya plays with the small folk children, she probably already sees an older Arya tumbling in the hay with a stable boy. Her position, her well-being, everything she is depends on how her charges behave, and this is perhaps why she is so hard on Arya. That's a great comment, Lady Yvonne. Thank you for bringing it up. And, but Jeff, what do you think about that in terms of our take on Septim Ordain so far? I regret nothing about our take about Septim Ordain. How did I see that coming? <laughs> No, it's 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 a really good comment because I, I think it does speak to Septim Ordain's official role in the series in being the instructor of Sansa and Arya, as well as serving a bit of a mentorship role to a number of the other women and girls that are in the Winterfell uh, entourage and, and courtier. But at the same time, she kind of is the worst of all time because Septim Ordain, how do, how do I say this? I mean, okay, so last week... When Ned Stark is talking with Septim Ordain, or talking rather with Sansa and Arya, and Septim Ordain is there, and Septim and 
Sansa says, hey, I would love to like go see Joffrey one last time. And Mordain is like, oh, don't worry, Lord Eddard. I'll go take her to our, I'll go take her to Joffrey one last time. And then Ned's like, no, you, you can't do that. And then Sansa starts like breaking down because she doesn't understand, which is, again, being so fair to Sansa, as I always am in this podcast, um, <laughs> as I always am, is basically, it's is good. I mean, it's good that Ned's saying she can't see Joffrey, but then Septimor Mordain doesn't really help the situation. Instead, she says, well, your father knows best sort of thing, which I don't know if you guys remember being 11 years old, seeing that it's my birthday and I'm turning 11 today. Um, I, I'm keenly aware of this, is that when people say that your father or your mother knows best as an 11 year old, you just don't get it. You don't understand it. And it really doesn't help reinforce what Ned Stark is attempting to do here. Like she needs to like kind of step up a little bit in order to help Ned out a bit, in order to show that what you know Ned is doing here is not just correct because he's saying so, but there's probably a deeper purpose here. So instead of saying your father knows best, maybe say, yeah, it sucks that you can't see Joffrey. I'm so sorry about that, showing that sympathy and empathy and compassion. And at the same time, also being like, well, he has reasons and real reasons that he will definitely explain to you come later on when you guys are on the ship getting back towards Winterfell or something like that. So yeah, I, I get what what she what um I get what Lady Yvonne's saying about uh Septim Ordain. I, I do think that Septim Ordain, though, doesn't do well by these girls. She really reinforces some of the gender stereotypes in Westeros. And when Arya can't really act up the way that she's supposed to, because that's not who she is as a character and as a person, it really has a major impact on Arya and that she feels isolated and alienated from her sister and really from Winterfell as as, as well. Like there's no sense that like basically Septim Dane is forcing the girls down one particular pathway. And if you are not on that pathway, then you're going to have some significant consequences and fallbacks from the, from the ladies at court. And September Dane reinforces that by being the authority figure for these girls and not being a good authority for these girls. But I've been talking a lot. So Emmett, what do you think? Why do you think that September Dane is the worst of all time? You make excellent points, as does Lady Yvonne in terms of, you know, we're not saying September Dane's role shouldn't exist. We're not saying Ned and Catelyn should not have hired some kind of woman or religious authority to see this Sansa and Arya's education. These young noblewomen, that's obviously a very important role. And Catelyn's probably not going to be able to play that role entirely by herself. That does make sense. But I don't think she's playing that role particularly successfully, and I don't entirely agree with a lot of the the premise and the question. I don't see why Arya being a horse girl makes her more inclined to bed down with the grooms or stable boys or other small folk lads later in life. I mean, we have no indication that Gatehouse Amy observed these tomboy tactics, but she's still known for sleeping with men who are, for many of her family, below her station. Marjorie's cousins, in all likelihood, at least one of them needs the moon tea she acquired from Maester Pycelle, and they're much more on the Sansa end of the direction. So I don't necessarily agree. I mean, I think if Septimordain feels that way, then I think she's incorrect, is what I'm saying. And I don't necessarily consider that a mark in her favor, but a, a stereotype she is observing. So while I don't think Mordain is a monster, and I don't think that her role doesn't need to exist, I think she... I think she's part of a pattern in these early books where the Stark sisters, A, don't receive much valuable instruction, and B, you can see kind of Martin's world building failing and he doesn't really provide, this is something that people who know much more about it than me have talked about, he doesn't really provide a realistic woman's court around Sansa and Arya in the way there most likely would be in a family of that type, and I think you can see him trying to correct that later with the Tyrells in Sansa's early Storm of Swords chapters. So I, I think Mordain ends up being not... I think Mordain ends up kind of getting short shrift from, from the audience and the author in that regard. But I, I don't think we've been too terribly harsh on her, out of proportion anyway. 
Totally, totally agreed. But for now, this is the synopsis for a Game of Thrones Arya 4. Cyril Farrell slashes at Arya Stark towards her head, towards her left, towards her right, low, calling out each of the places he'll strike at with his wooden sword before he takes a swing at Arya. When Cyril lunges at Arya, she sidesteps and almost, almost is able to land a hit on the Cyril. They continue the water dance, left high, left right, left low, and then left before Cyril's wooden sword schwacks her from the right. Ow! Arya cries out in pain, but she thinks that this bruise, like all the other ones, will be a lesson for her, and lessons make you better. You are dead now, Sirius says. Yeah, only because you cheated, Arya angrily declares. You said left and you went right. Yup, and Sirio ain't sorry. Sure, he lied to Arya with his words, but his eyes and arms shouted the truth. When Arya protests that she was watching him closely, Sirio tells her that watching ain't seeing. Regardless, Sirio needs to unload some critical backstory on Arya before he dies. Ciro Farrell was the first sword to the Sea Lord of Bravos, and you are knowing how that came to pass. Well, you were probably a pretty good swordsman, right, Arya asks. Well, yeah, Ciro was the fucking shit, but he wasn't the strongest, fastest, or youngest sword fighter. But what Ciro had instead was the ability to see things for how they truly were. In Bravos, ships brought all sorts of strange animals to the Sea Lord's palace. When the first sword of Bravos had died, the Sea Lord sent for Ciro along with many other Bravos. When, this, when Sirio met the Sea Lord, he had a fat cat in his lap, and the Sea Lord asked Sirio if he'd ever seen a girl cat like that before. Sirio had replied that, yeah, of course he had, he'd seen a thousand cats like that. And so the Sea Lord had named Sirio the first Sword of Bravos. <sighs> Great story, Dad, but it makes no fucking sense, Arya doesn't exactly say, so Sirio explains a little bit better. The cat was an ordinary cat, no more. The others expected a fabulous beast, so that is what they saw. How large it was, they said. It was no larger than any other cat, only fat from indolence, for the sea lord fed it from his own table. What curious small ears, the other bravos had said. Its ears had been chewed, off, had been chewed away in kitten fights, and it was plainly a tomcat. Yet the sea lord had said, her. And that is what the others saw. Are you hearing? Ah, well, maybe you could have put it in something like that other than a goddamn riddle, Ciro. But Arya understands. Ciro saw what was there just so. Open your eyes, Arya. The heart lies and the head plays tricks, but the eyes see true. Look with your eyes. Hear with your ears. Taste with your mouth. Smell with your nose. Feel with your skin. Then comes the thinking afterwards. And that way, knowing the truth. Just so, Arya says, grinning. And then Sirio smiles at Arya and tells her that when they get back to... Here we go again, Emmett. Winterfell, it'll be time to use this so-called needle. Oh, that'll be so much fun, Arya says. Wait till she... God damn it. Wait till she shows John. Of course, George has to throw that in there. But then, just then, the wooden door behind Arya crashes open and in walks in five Lannister Redcloaks and Marin Trant, a droopy-eyed shit-eater. He's armored up from being a traitorous son of a bitch who deserves to die in the throne room, but his Lannister toadies are only wearing male shirts and steel caps with lion crests like a bunch of fucking dopes about to get their asses kicked hard. Marin demands that Arya Stark comes with them, and Arya chews her lip for a second. What do you want? Marin lies and says that her father wants to see her. Arya takes a step forward, but, but Sirio stops her. And why is it that Lord Eddard is sending Lannister men in his own place? I am wondering... Arya sees with her eyes. 
My father wouldn't send you. She picks up her stick sword. The Lannisters laugh like morons about to die, and Marin gets all huffy about being a knight of the King's Guard. So was the Kingslayer, Arya says, when he killed the old king. I don't have to go with you if I don't want to. Sir, in quotation marks, Marin, and it's in quotation marks because he's no true knight, orders the Lannister men to take Arya prisoner, and three of them move towards Arya and Sirio. Arya's afraid, but then she remembers Sirio's words. Fear cuts deeper than swords. Sirio steps out, a bit of a no-chance-and-no-choice moment, and starts tapping his wooden sword against his boot. You will be stopping there. Are you men or dogs that you would threaten a child? The Lannister dead men tell him to get the fuck out of the way, but Sirio smacks the first one with his sword upside the head. Great moment. Really enjoyed that. Sirio tells those youngins to speak to him with respect, and the dude Sirio just smacked tries to loosen his sword from his scabbard. But Sirio hits him hard. So satisfying. With his wooden sword breaking his idiot hand. You are quick for a dancing master, Marin says, like a coward in full armor and behind his Lancer toadies. You are slow for a knight, Sirio throws back. The other four Lancer men unsheathe their swords and start circling the dancing master like vultures. Sirio tells Arya that they're done dancing for the day. She needs to run to her father. And now. Arya didn't want to rule out, but when Sirio spoke, she obeyed. Swift as a deer, she says. She retreats a ways back, but she still watches what's happening, and she suddenly realizes that Sirio was really only toying with Arya in all of her dancing lessons, because Sirio is about to bring an ungodly shitstorm of dancing ferocity down on those bozos. Arya watches the Lannisters, noticing the vulnerabilities in spaces where they weren't armored well, or armored at all for that matter. Their eye sockets, their legs, their hands. Sirio didn't wait for them to reach him. He spins left, kicking and whirling his way about, cracking the faces and legs of the Lannisters. Sirio ducks under a sword swipe and brings his wooden sword up and through the eye of one of the red cloaks. All the Lannisters are down, but a few of them try to get up. The man whose hand Sirio had broken tries to stab Sirio with his dagger, but Sirio rings his bell and then bashes his kneecap. Again, super fucking satisfying. The final red cloak curses, charges, and hacks at Sirio, but Sirio ducks, dodges, dives, and dodges before bringing his wooden sword at the man's neck and shoulder. The Lannister man tries to bring his long sword up, but Sirio crushes his windpipe with his wooden sword, and the man dies gasping for air and clutching at his neck. Whew, man, just makes my heart just go like that. Arya backs into a corner as five Lancer dudes are dead or dying in the room, but before she gets away, she sees Marin Trant drawing his long sword. Arya child, be gone now, Sirio says, never taking his eyes off Marin. Arya knows that Doom is approaching Sirio. She screams at Sirio to run, but would Sirio Pharrell first sort of Bravos run? Abso-fucking-lutely not. The first sword of Bravos does not run. Sirio dances away from Marin's cuts. He checks three of Marin's sword swings, but the fourth breaks Sirio's wooden sword. But before Arya can see what happens next, she runs sobbing from the room. Arya runs through the kitchens, blind and panicky. She pushes through a baker's boy holding loaves of fresh-baked bread. A butcher with his arms red to his elbows tries to block her, but she spins around him. She runs and runs and runs, thinking of all the words that Sirio taught her. Finally, she reaches a crossroads at the turret stair. Should she go up? Or maybe down? Up would take her to the Tower of the Hand, and down would take her on uncertain paths. Never do what they expect, she remembers Sirio telling her once. She heads down the stairs, and good thing that she does. Arya reaches the cellar with no exit. She sheathes her wooden sword and leaps atop the barrels until she finally, 
finally finds a window. She pulls herself up, and I have to note that that's really good upper body strength, Arya. Way to do your pull-ups in the gym class. And finally, she's in daylight. Oh, man, this chapter. <clears throat> Arya stands in the bailey of the Tower of the Hand, and Arya immediately sees that everything is terrible. The wooden door to the Tower of the Hand had been broken apart by axes, and there was a dead man face down on the steps to the Tower of the Hand. Worse, the man was wearing gray wool, stark colors. She doesn't know who the man is, but she's terrified. No, she whispered. What was happening? Where was her father? Why had the red cloaks come for her? She thinks back to watching Varas and Illyrio down in the dungeons. If one hand can die, why not a second? Arya begins crying, but she holds her breath and hears with her ears. She hears the sounds of battle, shouts, screams, steel on steel, and it's all coming from the Tower of the Hand. She couldn't go back to the tower, but what about Dad? What about her father, Ned? She closes her eyes and tries to think, despite the terror in her gut. They'd already killed Jory, Will, and Heward. They could kill Ned, too. And her? Yeah, they could kill Arya. Sure, she could play at being a water dancer, but that really wouldn't get her anywhere right now. Marin had probably killed Ciro Pharrell, and she was only a scared girl with a wooden sword, alone and afraid. Arya gets out into the deserted castle yard, thinking that everybody is probably hiding from the fighting. She looks up to her bedchamber longingly, very longingly for just a moment, before moving away from the Tower of the Hand. She stays in shadow, moving along the buildings, knowing that they'd kill her if they found her. A dozen gold cloaks come running, but Arya, smart as she is, doesn't declare herself to them. She doesn't know whose side they're on, and man, is that really good that she didn't declare herself to them. She makes it to the stables and finds Hullen, her father's stable master, slumped over with a dozen stab wounds. She thinks he's dead, but when she approaches, his eyes open. Arya Underfoot, you must warn you, your lord father. He coughs up blood, and then he dies. Within the stable itself are more dead bodies. A groom and three of her father's guards are dead. They were probably protecting an abandoned wagon that was being loaded for the voyage home. Among the dead is Desmond. You remember him from Arya 3? The Stark guardsman who had promised Arya that he'd protect her father and boasted that every northerner is worth ten of these southern swords? Jesus, this chapter. Enraged, Arya kicks the body, accusing the dead man of lying to her. And I just have to say, it's really brutal, emotional. It's a very brutal, emotional moment for Arya, but it's really brutal for the reader as well because, you know, this guy's dead. And it's, it's just really sad. Arya's plan originally was to saddle a horse and ride like hell up the King's Road back to Winterfell, and she does start to take a saddle and bridle off the wall to mount a horse, but then a chest catches her eye. It's her chest, the one with her silks, velvets, and needle. She gets down into the dirt and starts digging through everything, looking, looking, looking for needle, but to no avail. Maybe someone had stolen it, but then her hands grasp the cold metal just in time. There she is, a voice hisses close behind Arya. Arya whirls about and comes face to face with a smirking stable boy holding a pitchfork. She asks who he is. Well, he ain't given his name, but he sure as shit knows who Arya is. Arya asks him to help him stable a horse. You know, he's if you do that, you'll get a reward from Ned if you help. Ah, no, he ain't about to do that. Ned's dead, Arya. He's going to take her to Cersei. He lunges for her, and Arya forgets all about the training that Ciro had given her. Instead, she remembers the words of her bastard half-brother, actually her cousin, Jon Snow. Stick him with the pointy end. Arya plunges Needle into the gut of the stable boy. He drops his pitchfork, gasping, sighing. Take it out, he moans. His blood begins staining his tunic. Arya does, and the stable boy dies. 
But now all of the horses are screaming and Arya needs to get the fuck out of here fast, quick, fast, in a hurry. She'd been saddling a horse herself, but then she realizes that the gates and doors of the Red Keep would be closed and locked. She thinks about how she could escape before she finally comes onto an idea. She'll go through the tunnels below the Red Keep, just like she did back in Arya 3. Arya wasn't certain she knew the way exactly, but she had no other choice. She had to try. She slips into some of her clothes and secures Deedle. But to get to the entrance of the tunnels, she had to cross the castle courtyard in broad daylight. No more shadows. But she has, again, no other choice. She peers out and sees gold cloaks on the walls. What would happen if they saw her running? Would they see her? Would they care? She decides she has to get going anyways. But instead of running, the voice of Syria Pharrell seems to whisper in her ear, Calm as still water, quiet as a shadow. Arya steps into the light and walks across the courtyard in full view of the entirety of the Red Keep. It's fucking terrifying, and she knows that people are looking at her and she's being seen. But she also knows that if she runs, she'll get her ass captured. She walks and walks and walks. And finally, 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 she gets to the sept on the far side of the castle courtyard. Arya crawls in and out of the windows of the septs, and it takes her over an hour to find the same window that she had crawled through to escape Tom and Marcella and the Lannister guards a little while back. But finally she's through. She lights a candle, and then she sees the monsters again. Only this time, the monsters don't scare her. They were almost like old friends. Dragons, she whispers at them as she draws Needle. Arya felt better holding Needle, and... I have to say, I feel better with Arya holding Needle. So, good job, Arya. As Arya makes her way through the tunnel, she remembers the stable boy slumped over dead. She has a sudden fear that the dead boy might reach out from the darkness and grab her. She thinks about blowing her candle out, but then Cyril Farrell's words, fear cuts deeper than swords, come back to her again. She remembers the crypts of Winterfell and how much more terrifying they were than the tunnels below the Red Keep. You see, back at Winterfell, long, long time ago, before even Rickon had been born, Rob had taken Arya, Sansa, Bran down to the crypts. They saw the statues and direwolves staring at them. They passed the statues of Lord Rickard Stark, his son Brandon Stark, Ned's brother, and Lyanna's crypt. Old Nan had warned them that there would be rats as big as hounds down there. Well, as big as dogs, what they said, but I just want to throw that big as hounds reference there. But Rob had told them that there wasn't that that really wasn't the need to fear. This is where the dead walk. And then a low moaning noise had begun echoing off the walls. A spirit stepped into the open, pale, white, and moaning for blood. Sansa had shrieked and run like a sane person. And guys, look at me again, being ever so fair to Sansa, because you're supposed to fucking run when you see a ghost coming at you in the dark. Bran had grabbed Rob's leg and bawled, but Arya? Arya stood her ground and punched the spirit square in the stomach. It wasn't a spirit after all. It was John covered in flour. You stupid, Arya told John. You scared the baby. But Rob and John had only lolled at that joke, and soon Arya and Bran were laughing too. The memory makes Arya smile now deep inside the darkness of the tunnels under the Red Keep. The dark wasn't scary to her anymore. If the ghost of the stable boy jumped out at her, Arya would kill the boy all over again. She was done with this shit and done with this place. Done with the castle done with King's Landing, she was going the fuck home to Winterfell. Arya plunges forward into and through the darkness, unafraid. And that is A Game of Thrones Arya 4, 
a, I mean, I guess the best way to put it is this is a huge chapter, both in terms of its actual size. I mean, the summary itself, as I'm looking at this Google document, is about six pages long, but it's much more huge in terms of how it's working in Arya's arc and kind of her plot as well. And much like Eddard 14, this chapter very much feels like the climax to Arya's A Game of Thrones arc, with her final chapter serving as basically like the epilogue, sort of like Eddard 15's does the same way for Ned's story. And man, I got to say this, Emmett, I love the Jesus out of this chapter. I hope you do the same. I also love our non-denominational god out of this chapter, Jeff. Absolutely. This is my second favorite chapter in this first book, behind only Sansa 2, and it features my single favorite uh, set piece in this book. Even more than uh, the Tower of Joy or the Whispering Wood or the Birth of Danny's Dragon, Serial Pharrell's Last Stand is just is it for me. It's the most exciting, the most perfectly written, the most resonant in terms of theme and character, and it's not even the only great thing about this chapter. As you say, it's a long one and every part of it works. Arya is, of course, the underfoot character in A Game of Thrones. She has the fewest POV chapters of anybody and she yeah. doesn't really have a distinct arc unto herself, but... Everything comes together here, and this chapter or so is, is really where I got interested in Arya as a POV, and where everything I love about her story in the books to come is established. Yeah, it's really good that way, and I, and I do love this as a huge culmination of her arc and how she uses the different aspects of what her mentors, namely being Jon Snow, Ned Stark, and then Ciro had taught her throughout A Game of Thrones. And so one of the things I did today, actually, before I came onto this this podcast and this live cast, is that I skimmed Arya's A Game of Thrones chapters prior to coming on. And I love how each of the major plot beats calls back to events and teachings that Arya received throughout A Game of Thrones. I mean, the obvious one is, of course, Jon's sticking with the pony end, which is what she does with the butcher's boy. But another like kind of very minor thing is that when Ned talks with her in, in Arya 2 and tells her, like, we are in a really dangerous fucking place. Like, we need to be extraordinarily cautious and not call attention to ourselves and not do things that are going to be seen as bad for us. Um, you just need to be careful. Like, I, I was thinking about that when Arya is looking at the gold cloaks that are running through the castle courtyard, a very minor scene. And that seemed to me to be kind of a callback to that moment with Ned there. And then, of course, we have Ciro Pharrell's teachings all kind of coming together here and so much so that by the end or by the middle half of this chapter, Arya begins believing, having, I don't know if you want to call it an auditory hallucination, but she begins believing that Ar that Ciro is speaking to her with her own, with his own voice. So she has all of these different um, sayings about Ciro, fear cuts deeper than swords, being the major one, kind of just echoing throughout her mind as she's going through these, this really scary, terrifying chapter in in a, in a Game of Thrones and really scary, terrifying moment in her storyline. But yeah, it's it really starts, though, with this huge moment of suspense of because we had just finished what Ned Stark's chapter where he is arrested and his men die around him. And then, boom, we're like right there with Arya Stark and you're like waiting for shit to go down in this chapter. Yeah, that's the great thing about it, because if you look at this opening scene of the chapter on its own merits, it's just a classic sports coach scene, right? It's just dueling and mentoring and getting better at your abilities getting ready it's like you feel like getting ready for the big game kind of scene it's feel good on the surface but it wears this veil of dread because it comes right on the heels of Edward 14 in which her father went down and we know even as first-time readers this is going to have some huge ramifications for Arya even if we don't know the form it takes we're watching play fighting between Arya and Sirio with the knowledge that the real thing is going down in the throne room that the men that Arya played with at Winterfell are dying and there's that added layer of sadness that you got out in your summary and that we know 
again, even as first-time readers, that there's probably no way in hell that Arya and Sansa are getting on that ship now. So her anticipation of right. going home just withers on the vine for us as readers. I mean, this hurts. She would have a fresh bruise there by the time she went to sleep mm-hmm. somewhere out at sea. But... As you said, not nearly as bad as this hurts. Sirio Farrell allowed himself a smile. I am thinking that when we are reaching this Winterfell of yours, it will be time to put this needle in your hand. Yes, Arya said eagerly. Wait till I show John. Oh. Oh my god. That's like that's like a needle in your heart, appropriately enough. Oh man, it's it just reminds me of that line from that awful Hobbit movie. Why does it hurt so bad? Because it was real. And I, I mean, like, it, it's... You're absolutely right. And, you know, even for uh, for us now that we're in 2019, season seven, which is like basically the last version of A Song of Ice and Fire-ish that we saw, we haven't seen Arya and John reunite yet. We saw John and Sansa reunite, which is, again, like we were saying last week or the week before, an extraordinarily touching moment in the story. I mean, I'm, I'm really, really, one of the things I'm most excited about for, for season eight is John and Arya reuniting. But here... Just taking a look at the five published books in A Song of Ice and Fire, they're very, very far apart. I mean, John is dead, for that matter. Arya's in Bravos. I mean, John will come back, of course. Arya will, dead. of course, come yeah. back to, to Westeros. Dead. Dead. But not quite. Actually, he is totally dead, but he'll, he'll come back. The thing is is, is that, yeah, it's, it's the, the emotions that are just piping through this chapter are, are so intense. And I, and I do think... This is not a ding against George because I'm similar in kind of my own writing style and that it's much, I find I've write a lot of sad moments much easier than writing these happy moments. Then we did get that kind of happier John chapter two weeks ago where George is able to write, you know, happy moments in the story. And I think like people that say that Song of Ice and Fire is grimdark or awful and deserve to be shot into space aboard a, a, a toy rocket. But at the same time, like he does do a really good job of just kind of amping up the amount of emotional sadness involved with the arcs of these characters like Arya saying that oh I'm gonna have the chance to go see wait till I show John my needle and my new abilities and like that hasn't happened yet I mean hopefully maybe in season eight Arya will be able to demonstrate some of her abilities I mean we did see that fantastic fight scene between Arya and Brienne in season seven maybe she'll have the ability to show uh, to, to show John her new abilities and her new faceless men, I guess, changing faces sort of thing. I, mean, I think John would be freaked the fuck out, but probably. at the same time, you, 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 do th- you do think this is probably going to be an interesting moment in either the Winds of Winter, Dream of Spring, and or Season 8, where John and Arya reunite. It's probably going to be one of the most touching moments in all of Song of Ice. I love that about Arya finally getting to show John what she can do and him being impressed by it. I could see that being a perfect heart-melting moment upon their reunion. And yeah, we get a lot of lingering moments in this chapter before the hammer falls. We really get Sirio Farrell this chance to present himself as a teacher because he's imparting true wisdom to his charge. He doesn't just lie to her about where that blow is coming from to get her to pay attention to what he's actually doing. He sits her down and talks her through the wider implications of that moment. Can you imagine Alice or Thorne ever being as effective an instructor? No. No, you cannot. No. And of course, those wider implications include what's going on with Dad. I mean, rereading this chapter, it's, it stood out so strongly to me as a parallel with Eddard 14, in which you have Sirio's story about being marched into the Hall of Power and Bravos to the Sea Lord and being asked to say what he thought about this, this creature in the Seat of Power, this cat. And that's exactly what happened to Ned. He was marched into the Hall of Power and said plainly the truth, as Sirio did, about what was sitting in front of him, damn the consequences. Joffrey is the yellow yep. cat, the Lannister lion, mm. and Ned was being asked to call Joffrey his king despite that being a lie, just as so many were being asked to overpraise this darn cat on the Sea Lord's lap. 
And just like Arya, Ned was deceived as to where the blow was coming from. It came from Littlefinger and Jano Slint, despite being told differently. But of course, Ned's truth is not just a sharp lesson like it is for Arya. Right. Ned's truth brings him a cost that's far more than just a bruise. So that's the transition from childhood to adulthood we've been talking about throughout this book. The moment when the scales fall, that's what this is for Arya. And Sirio is telling Arya to see through that golden veil over the eyes that we talked about in Sansa 2, that filter from the stories and the songs. He's saying to her, you have to know the truth about the world. Do not hide, do not flinch. You have to know the thing in itself. That's the most important lesson you can take from me. And I think that's just perfect. Yeah, I think it is perfect. And again, it's fantastic. It's, it's something I never saw in this chapter before about Cyril Farrell's story being very much a, a metaphor for what we see with Ned Stark in the last chapter. Yes. Having to declare... I mean that's that's a fantastic point. This is this is why you're my co-host. This is oh, why shucks. you're the one that everybody likes on on the podcast. I, I mean I think it's really interesting in that like the the idea of like seeing with your eyes sort of thing. Like before you have to make like a conscious like A to B decision making tree in your head that you're supposed that you're instinctively doing. You're able to make those decisions on your own using your your senses before you actually have to put significant intellectual thought mm-hmm. into it. And I think that's a really smart point on on Sarah Farrell's part. And it really is a lesson that does great work for Arya in that, you know, Arya does all of these major moves in this chapter, moving from the castle courtyard to the sept, not going up the stairs to the Tower of the Hand, you know, using the tunnels underneath of the, the Red Keep. And these are, you know, Arya does put some thought into them, but they're also essentially instinctive things because when she, like take the, the decision whether she's supposed to go up or down at the Tower of the Hand. She gives it a brief thought of she can go up to Ned or go down. She immediately thinks she snaps to what Ciro Ferella told her, which is that do do the thing that your enemies would not expect you to do. So she goes down and that has a really positive impact on her. So, I mean, and, and this is not to say that you shouldn't you know, sit down and think about like long term decisions and, and consequences and do a decision tree type thing. At the same time, though, in the heat of the moment where Arya is in, where she is in mortal peril and danger, she does have to make these quick decisions, and she does so using her senses throughout this chapter and doing it in such a way that she's able of anyone in all of Ned Stark's retinue to escape from the horrors that are befalling them as they're all dying in King's Landing or will die in the case of Ned Stark or be sold into sex slavery in the case of Jane Poole or be held as a hostage in the case of Sansa Stark. So her quick wittedness, her ability to utilize her senses does allow her to make a nearly clean getaway from the, from this chapter. Absolutely, and it's not just a lesson for children. Like, when we think about the great military minds of Westeros, one of the first ones that comes up is your namesake, Brendan Blackfish, Brendan Tully of River Run. And what does he say is the number one rule of warfare? Never give your enemy what they want, which is the exact same lesson Syria was teaching Are you here. Never do what your enemy expects. Never give them what they're hoping for. Never hand the, the game over to them. And I think, again, that's a lesson you have to learn when you're crossing from childhood into adulthood, like the speech Ned gave Arya and Arya too about the wolf pack. Right. And I think what we see when Arya is, is eagerly talking about going home to show John, that's her childhood right there. That's the best moment in her childhood. That's the dream she wants. And then the door crashes open and Merrant Trant walks in and Arya's childhood comes crashing down. This endless fall that right. mirrors Bran's fall and will persist throughout Ned's execution and the Red Wedding. And I love the little detail that when Marin Trent says, Arya Stark, come with us, child. At first, she trusts him. She's about to just walk over instinctively, right. like you say. This very Sansa-esque trust of authority and the figures of knighthood. But then Syria reminds her to follow what he just taught her. Look with your eyes. Think through this situation. Mm-hmm. 
And then she specifically invokes Jamie to see through that institution in the White Cloaks. And then, as you said, Merrin immediately proves himself to be no true knight, to borrow Sansa's phrase, by going after her in force. And that, of course, is when we see Sirio step up to the plate. And again, it's a manner that directly recalls Ned. You will be stopping there. Are you men or dogs that you would threaten a child? <laughs> Once again, it's mercy for the kids that animates our heroes. But while Ned's story is all desperate tragedy, Sirio is this great larger-than-life figure right out of the song. He's just a legend. I am Sirio Pharrell, and you will now be speaking to me with more respect. <laughs> this isn't, this isn't, the tone is a little different from Ned. Here we're seeing how an actual legend and actor of the songs would manifest in such a situation. And of course, he promptly goes full Obi-Wan in, in the cantina slash Master Poe from Kung Fu on the Red Cloaks, just taking them apart. And Arya, of course, has to experience that realization that all mentees in genre fiction have to face. The realization that, oh, he wasn't showing me a fraction of what he could do. Watching him now, she right. realized that Sirio had only been toying with her when they dueled. Which, that has to happen for every, like, young protagonist in genre fiction. You have to realize that your mentor has abilities you never dreamed of. Again, that's part of crossing the threshold to adulthood. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I was I was thinking about this because, uh, you know, today... Uh, on Mondays, I'm off from work typically, and I was uh, wrestling with my my daughters, my two year old and my one year old, and I was like imagining like that being like a moment for Arya, where like I don't know, being a big strong man as I as I am, uh, you know, actually seeing me fighting for real, which wouldn't happen because I'm a lover, not a fighter, some of the time, I guess. Um, but uh, but you know, I, I do think like that's a really great point is that like she's seeing Sirio Pharrell as like this guy who's training her but he's also like he's very much paring down like his abilities right he's operating at like 10 percent level because like she's like the way the choreography that george integrates into his fighting style he's like flashing and ducking and dodging and diving and all the things from dodgeball from great movie from 2003 or 2004 uh, like he's fantastic in like his style and his fighting and it's just like Arya's in complete wonderment and amazement and you know you have that line from earlier in the chapter where Arya thinks like she almost landed a blow on on Ciro and you're like but did she really but did she Pr probably not but I mean it, it helps her to like feel better about her her abilities and she does grow in her her water dancing she does get better over time and she does utilize needle in a deadly way at the end of this uh, towards the end of this chapter here but yeah it's it's really the, a fantastic point that you know work that serial though is still like a mentor figure right he's operates not quite the same role as ned stark as you say but mentor figures have to die in order to allow to, their proteges to go on you know, Qui-Gon Jinn had to die in order to allow Obi-Wan to go on. Obi-Wan had to die in order to allow Luke Skywalker to progress in his training as a Jedi. Like, these are the ways that narrative fiction works and how narratives progress for the characters. And Sirio isn't a POV character. Arya Stark is. And her watching Sirio fight and watching Sirio die, holding off the Lannisters from taking Arya hostage and taking her prisoner and potentially killing her, which you do kind of, not necessarily, like, it's not Arya's fault that she doesn't recognize that the Lannisters probably would not kill her, that they needed her alive for a hostage. But that's a very real fear on her part. And it's a very understandable, realistic, rational fear on her part. But at the same time, though, Ciro does have to die in order to allow Arya to progress in her narrative. And, and Luke Skywalker has to die to allow Rey to progress in, progress in her arc in the undisputed cinematic masterpiece, Star Wars <laughs> Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. But yeah, like I say, the emphasis is on childish beliefs falling away. Arya clings to that wooden sword when Sirio is, is engaging in his fight, that just like the stick she'll break 
when she declares that she's all grown up in Harrenhal at the end of Clash of Kings. I am a direwolf and done with wooden teeth. It's all part of that arc. And what really elevates this scene for me and allows it to exemplify A Song of Ice and Fire as a whole is after the Red Cloaks are all down or dying and Sir Marin Trant steps in personally to take Sirio down. And there's this moment where Arya looks. She follows Sirio's advice. She looks and she sees. And what she sees past the myths, past the stories and the songs is that it's not going to matter that Sirio Pharrell is the greatest swordsman alive and that Marin Trant is never more than mediocre. And why doesn't it matter? Because Marin is armored from head to toe and he has Castleford steel and Sirio has a stick. So he may as well be naked with no weapon but his fists for all that's going to matter against what Marin can bring to the table. It, his, his skill and all his training is, is not going to avail him against this hard reality. And I think it's so important that Martin brings that to the table as well. He says, yes, we love Sirio. We love the, the training he's imparted to Arya, but I'm not going to pretend he's just so magical and wonderful. He can break the laws of reality and take down a guy in armor with a stick. Right. And that's what makes the Song of Ice and Fire so special. Right. It's including both of those perspectives. I think that's so crucial to making this chapter work. You're absolutely right in that. Like, in like lesser fiction, you can imagine Ciro Farrell, like somehow killing Marin Trant right there with a the wooden stick. But Martin wants to ground the heroism of Ciro Farrell very much in realistic confines and that he's not going to survive the battle with Marin Train, as we'll talk about at the end of this podcast. But, you know, at the same time, it's really good on, on George's part that he writes a a way that Ciro Farrell, even though he's not going to make it out alive, that that he's giving it his he's giving Marin Tran like a bit of a, a fight on his hands with a wooden stick. I mean, like, right. I mean, like Marin Tran's eventually going to kill him. But at the same time, like he blocks Three of his cuts before the fourth one finally shatters his or cuts his, uh, his his wooden stick in half. So I think it's really good that we have that there that really makes us do, you know, have that emotional reaction to to Ciro Farrell and that he stands his ground. Like he's very much like Brienne here. It's no chance and no choice for him. And he he, he doesn't run. This, the first sort of Bravos doesn't run. And I think like it's a badass line and I love the line so, so much. But it's not just a badass line just in isolation. It's not in a vacuum. What it is, what it does more than anything else is that it is demonstrating his role as a hero and that his no chance, no choice moment is him standing up to a Kingsguard knight armored in everything that he could possibly be wearing in order to save the life, in order to protect Arya Stark. And I think that's really, really vital in understanding Ciro Farrell's role in the story. He's saving an innocent here. He's protecting an innocent. He's not just uttering badass lines like Clint Eastwood in, a, in an old Western. I mean, you do kind of get a little bit of an old Western feel with Ciro Farrell and his lines, but it's not like he's after gold or anything like that. He's a true hero because he's doing a good thing in order on, uh, on behalf of an innocent, on behalf of someone that he cares about. And I think that's awesome. As I've said before, the central tone of the series as a whole, arguably, but definitely this first book, is the meeting point of romanticism and realism. What happens when you collide them? Right. And that while the latter wins in the short term, the author's heart is ultimately with the former. That, yes, he's not going to magically allow Sirio to survive this situation that he can't realistically survive. But we, too, as with Arya, are meant to see with our eyes and realize that this is what heroism truly looks like, even, especially, if it doesn't save Sirio's life. I mean, it's the same thing with Ned. The takeaway is not just that it's foolish and stupid to try to embrace mercy and you should just embrace, to quote Sandor, that strong arms and steel swords rule this world. Because in this moment, with his final breaths, Cyril Farrell insists that being the first sword of Bravos 
is not about being the quickest or the deadliest. Being the first sort of bravos means you do not run. Yes. It is not your abilities that make you who you are, Harry Potter. It is your choices. Right. And the and the word choice that Martin uses is so perfect. Sirio does not say that. He does not call out the first sort of bravos does not run. He sings it. That's mm. the word choice Martin uses. How perfect is Hell that? Yeah. Sirio Farrell gets to sing his song of ice and fire and live it. He mm. knows himself perfectly in his final moments and he gets to go down as his best possible self. How many of us get to do that? He's right to put his life on the line for Arya, just as Ned was for Cersei's kids, just as Davos will be for Edric Storm, and as you say, Brienne for the kids at the inn in A Feast for Crows. After all, Jaime didn't personally defeat that bear at Harrenhal in hand-to-hand combat and then ride the bear into battle as his victorious <laughs> steed. Like, that's not what happened. Like, the way the way the bear died in that encounter was actually kind of cynical and political. Yeah. Like, Bolton's men killed it with arrows because Jamie is too valuable to let die and then Vargo Hote couldn't do anything ex- except scream you flew my bear because you know Bolton's men outnumbered him <laughs> very, again very grounded very realistic very cynical but what matters is that Jamie made the choice that's what makes our hearts leap when he jumps in to save Brienne you want her go get her so we did that's what makes that moment powerful not him being able to master the situation through sheer force of will it's the decision he makes that's what makes that moment powerful, and that's what makes this moment powerful. And that's why, for me, this scene exemplifies everything I love about this series. But I've been talking forever. You stop me gushing, sir. Please, just keep on talking forever. I could I could listen to you talk forever, that's for sure. Well, you don't say. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, that's, that's it's really good. I mean, like, realism is not just, is not always grim dark. Like, you're actual lives are not just a series of terrible things happening one after the other after the other like it has to be intermixed with the happy moments and it has to be intermixed with romanticism as well and i think like martin as as the bads are always talking about is writing these stories of like aha look at me doing this these terrible things to these good people like ned stark to like Ciro pharrell but that's not what's happening with ned stark with Ciro pharrell with davos seaworth with brienne of tarth what they're doing is they're operating out of a inner nobility, not one that's been granted them by their titles, not one that's been handed down to them by their father before them or their brother in the case of Ned. What Martin is doing here is showing true humanity and true nobility within these characters and that they stand up for what's right and they fight for what's right. And damn be the consequence in the case of Ciro Farrell. The first sort of bravos doesn't run. I love that line. I love that line more because of what the, of what the, of what it means. It means that Ciro is not going to run and allow Arya Stark to be captured by Meryn Trant and be handed over to the Lannisters to potentially be killed. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, it's a fantastic send off for Ciro Farrell, and it just does so much great work in both in also crafting Arya's future story because she is always consistently as we're going to be talking about here in Arya's fifth chapter in in a Game of Thrones and throughout Clash and Storm and Feast and Dance and the Winds of Winter she's always going to be calling back to Ciro Pharrell because that's a life worth living towards that's a life worth exemplifying in her own life yeah it's 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 so important to have this on the line before Arya gets into her her later mentors. This this resonates so strongly with Yorin throwing down his life on the line for her, with Beric Dondarrion dying over and over and over again to protect the small folk. This is the model Arya runs both to and from over the rest of the story. And you know, when Sirio goes down here and tells her to run, she starts running and she really hasn't stopped since. That's her whole story now. She mm-hmm. she has these layovers at Harrenhal and the House of Black and White and so on, but she really never stops running, never stops trying to find a safe place after this because she can't. Her, her oasis has been destroyed. 
And I, I love this this nightmarish blur of images she, we get as she runs. She runs into this butcher whose arms are like red to the elbow, which just fits right. the horrible blood-soaked nightmarish tone of this chapter so well. We, of course, get the bloodshed at the Tower of the Hand with the door hammered open by Sandor, as we will learn in Sansa 4, and, and one man lying dead. And, of course, we get Hullin's final moments when he's just covered with blood and still trying to tell Arya to warn her lord father, still loyal to Ned, the man who treated him like a person in his dying moments. That's that's just so devastating and so perfect and and grounds us because, of course, as first-time readers, we're just coming off Edward 14, like I said. We're just catching up with this whole downfall situation. So this is just as nightmarish for us as it is for her. Yeah, it really is a nightmare going forward. I mean, you have to contrast the heroism of Cyril Farrell and that kind of romantic outlook with the horrors that she's seeing all around her because, as we talked about in Edward 14, like, shit has gone real fucking bad for Ned Stark and his men there. Like, the betrayal was absolute. I mean, the Gold Cloaks, the Lannisters, everyone was in on bringing Ned Stark and his men down. And, you know, the one thing that just kind of really is... It's infuriating, I mean, as a modern reader, and just as a reader in general, but we'll we'll be talking about this in Sansa's next chapter, which is next week's chapter, but... It's it's infuriating that Arya, Sansa, and Ned's lives were were, preserve, were worth saving and preserving. But what did Hullen do to deserve being like chopped down to pieces by Lannister guardsmen? He's a stable master. What did all of these guys, these servants of the Starks, what did they do in order to deserve a fate like this of being killed at sword point? And the only reason that they're killed at that that they're all murdered essentially by the Lannisters and by the Gold Cloaks is because they don't have social status. They don't have the wealth or the family name of Stark behind them that can save their life or temporarily in the case of Ned Stark for the more long-term in the case of Sansa and Arya. And I think that it's, it's infuriating for, for readers and it's really sad when Hullen is dead. I mean, again, he's just a stable master. He doesn't do anything besides take care of the horses. He's not carrying a sword, but they killed him anyways. They killed a non-combatant because they could. And because his status as a poor person, as a servant of the Starks, allowed them to do so, and they allowed them to do so with impunity. There's no war crimes in Westeros, necessarily. I mean, there is absolutely in in real life, but there's no war crime tribunal or something like that to try these people for murdering civilians. And they can just do it. And that's what they do, because they're Lannisters and they suck. The absolute worst. Yeah, I agree. There's this sense of powerlessness and chaos we see unfold here, especially through Arya's eyes. There's that devastating moment when she kicks Desmond to express her fury because that's the only outlet available to her to express her anger about what's happening. Much of Arya's story going forward is about her her angry attempts to control her environment, whether that's using Jockin's murder genie pact at Harrenhal to try to assert some control, whether her constant attempts in the Storm of Swords to escape from the Brotherhood and Sander to get back to her family... Or even finally becoming an assassin in a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons at the House of Black and White, because at least that's some measure of control over an environment that has just kept spinning out of control for her ever since this moment. And all this violent imagery, of course, culminates with the death of the stable boy, the first kill yes. from Arya. Now, I don't think this makes Arya a bloodthirsty monster. It's in self-defense. She's a panicking child. She feels hideous about it immediately afterwards. I don't feel like she's Joffrey in this moment, but... I think it's worth noting that it happens with Needle, her connection to John and Winterfell, her home, everything she loves about childhood. It's it's sullied in a way by this blood. And you think about the connection to Micah, the butcher's boy she loved, the friend she she missed and mourned, and now she has to secure her own escape, killed this other child who, as you say, is 
part of a class where he's not thinking about, oh, Stark versus Lannister, which side has the noble cause and which side was wrong? He's just thinking about who's going to feed me, who's going to benefit right. me, who can I find as a patron in this moment? And Arya is confronted with that harsh reality. And as I've been saying ad nauseum, there's the lawful, loss of useful innocence going on here. The horses are screaming. It reminds me of like Silence of the Lambs and how the association of screaming animals with that loss of that youthful innocence and that story and many others. You know, I compared back in Edward 12, the general tone of romanticism crashing into realism being similar to the tone and watchman of the image of the smiley face having just the <laughs> drop of blood on it. And this is the moment that Arya's watchman smiley face gets bloodied. I don't think it makes her a monster like I was saying, but this is a significant moment in terms of the loss of her innocence and the loss of her childhood in this chapter. Yeah, it really is the loss of her innocence. Which she, this is her first kill. I mean, this is the first person that she she kills. And I think it's justified, as you talked about, it's self-defense. I mean, there's there's a great book called On Killing, which I do recommend that that folks who are interested in the topic read, in which a, uh, I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head. I know he was a lieutenant colonel in the army. Uh, basically went through the record of people who had killed in combat, right? It, at some level, just a, a, a justified situation and, and talking about how that impacts the psyche, even if it's utterly justified, like pulling the trigger for your, your firearm, your weapon, your rifle, whatever you're, you're, you're using, is going to have a significant impact in changing who you are. And Emma, you're right that Ari immediately feels guilty about it. At the same time, though, when she's down in like the in the tunnel, she thinks about if this this guy comes back, if, if the stable boy comes back up, he's going to uh, she's going she's going to stab the shit out of him again and, and kill him again. And again, it's 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 all rooted in her her fear and her and her terror at what she's experiencing and what she's witnessed so far. Um, but again, there at the end, at when she's down in the tunnels, it is a bit of a thing where she is conquering her fear. And she's conquered her fear of what could be down in the tunnels, the darkness, the dragons, all of the different things that she's she's going through. And that kind of is a good way that Martin does to make this chapter much more uh, full and fleshed out is that as well as Arya experiencing that trauma of killing someone for the first time, she is also conquering her fears and I guess killing her fears. I don't know. That's, a, that's probably a terrible transition, but I'm just going to go with it. No, I agree. It's that very Stephen King tone of the the child confronting the monsters that are the embodiments of their childhood fears, and that's how they grew up sort of thing. The, the, the classic kind of horror novel formulation. And I like that Arya 4 ends on this very optimistic note, that for all that she's losing in this chapter, for all that the general tone is chaotic and bloody, her teachings from Syria genuinely do help. They get her across the yard. They save her at the Tower of the Hand, like you were saying. And the memory of home is what gets her out of the castle despite the dragon skulls. There's this moment when she's panicking. She's like, the ghost of the stable boy is going to get me. What do I do? What do I do? And you can see her just running in circles or shouting for help and getting caught. But she remembers home. She remembers a place where, to quote Blood Raven, darkness will make you strong. The crypts mm -hmm. and family and love and laughter. And there, I love that focus on, quote, fear cuts deeper than swords. And so as with Sirio's fable about the cat and Bravos, the focus shifts from what the world is doing to Arya, to how she responds. What is she going to do with it? You know, we all live in difficult times, but 
The question is what you do with the time that is given to you, to, to mm. paraphrase Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and it's, it's on this note that Arya becomes a much more central character in her own right. As I said earlier, she really is very much in the background in this first book. But when you get to Clash of Kings, she gets twice as many chapters as she does in this first book, more than anyone except Tyrion. And she really becomes a, a driving narrative force in her own right. And I think you can see that beginning here. I think you can see Martin's conception of Arya, what he wants to do with her thematically, just locking into place by the end of this chapter. Essentially, what happens to Arya in this chapter gives her the narrative agency to begin making decisions on her own. Now, in Clash, of course, as we're going to be finding out, she is a little bit restrained by characters like Yorin, who has forcibly taken her up to Winterfell. Um, And then later on, when she's captured, she is taken to Harrenhal, and she has to serve the Lannisters. But even there, she's developing her agency more and more. She's utilizing Jack and Agar in order to get... To kill Lannister retainers and then eventually to get her way out of uh, out of Harrenhal itself. And then she has the same thing where she's a captive of well of Sandra Clegane and the Brotherhood Without Banners and these different types of organizations and groups. And you can make the case, too, that Arya is a bit of a captive of the Faceless Men in a, Feast for, in a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons. So I'm very curious what's going to happen with Arya in The Winds of Winter when she finally makes that break from the Faceless Men, which everybody knows is coming. If you think that Arya is going to stay in Bravo's man, I don't know what to tell you. But when she does make that break from the Faceless Men and mix it back to Westeros, I think it's going to be a further permutation of this agency that Martin is embedding into Arya's arc and allowing her to make decisions and not just be a background character, but be a central character. I mean, it's no... In my mind, you know, Martin has said things in the past like that Arya is his second favorite point of view character after Tyrion Lannister. And I can't imagine a position where Martin would be in where he would want to have Arya fade back into the background again. I think she's going to continue to be a central character. And we do know uh, from a recently unearthed interview between the uh, the guy who did the maps for the Lands of Ice and Fire that Arya has a bunch of chapters in the Winds of Winter set in Bravos, And this guy actually used those chapters to craft the map of Bravos itself. That's why George R. R. Martin sent those chapters to him. So I think we're going to continue to see Arya's chapter count increasing ever upwards. Of course, in Dance, we only had two chapters. I think we'll probably be back to like 10 to 15 chapters in the Winds of Winter, volume one, maybe, and then another 25 chapters in volume two. I don't know. We'll see. I hope so. And on that note, we're going to shift to the foreshadowing and groundwork section of the podcast. First and most obviously, that scene with John in the crypts covering himself with flour and pretending to be a ghost, that's just going to resonate so strongly with John's story as mm-hmm. we go. Not only in his constant dream of the crypts, but also in the name of his wolf ghost and the fact that he himself ends up a corpse, albeit temporarily at the end of A Dance with Dragons. So I think uh, you're going to have to remind me because you know this step better than me that there's been confirmation that Martin always planned to have John die or it's been brought up in some capacity before. Am I completely wrong? I can always be completely wrong. No, Martin has said things like he was in an interview with James Hibbard right after the publication of A Dance with Dragons, and he said that the line Daggers in the Dark was something that he had written back in like 2001 when he was first starting writing what was then A Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons combined into A Dance with Dragons. I think like we also, as we talked about in our in our Brand 2 chapter, um, or Brand 3 chapter rather, that, you know, Brand seeing John in an Icel getting cold... That sort yep. of imagery has always been, I've always taken to be foreshadowing that John was always intended to die at some point, And then the resurrection angle, I, I'm curious when the resurrection angle came about, whether 
that was something that Martin had imagined from the get go or something that he developed as he was going along when we're getting to Clash and Storm and you have the resurrection of Beric Dondarrion. And of course, you know, you could also make the, I mean, just to kind of throw that out the window, I mean, you, can, you can make the case that Daenerys Targaryen walking into the fire at the end of a Game of Thrones could be seen as something that John, that he was planning, that George R. R. Martin was planning for John. But I'm not entirely sure on that angle necessarily. But I do think that he always intended John to die and to be a ghost. I mean, hell, I mean, John's direwolf was named Ghost from the very, from the get go. I mean, exactly. that also serves as fantastic uh, foreshadowing for what's for John's eventual fate come the end of A Dance of Dragons. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there, especially at the end. Uh, the next little bit of potential foreshadowing and groundwork we see here is that Arya is uh, forges this close connection with dragon skulls. So this, among a few other mentions of dragons in Arya's storyline, have led people to wonder whether she's going to become involved with live dragons at some point in her story. She's in Essos after all. Her faceless men bosses seem to be after the death of dragons, given what mm-hmm. the former Jockin Hagar is up to in Old Town. And they may have received their very own dragon egg from Euron Crozai in payment for the assassination of Big Daddy Balin Greyjoy. Oh, yeah. So this is one of those things where I'm, I'm intrigued but frustrated by Arya Storyline and Bravos because I can see that <laughs> becoming a thing, but I just don't see the space for it in two books right. if we also have to do a story of getting Arya back to Westeros and dealing with Lady Stoneheart and getting Nymeria and reuniting with her siblings blah 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 blah, blah. like there's, that's just a lot in and of itself having her get involved yeah, with Dany I mean, and the dragons if, if she does I think it's going to be in the process of both Arya and Dany arriving in Westeros I don't think there's another self-contained associate plot in the works for Arya or I hope there's not as much as I enjoy I, yeah, Bravos. I just don't think there's room for it well, there's the the major theory that the theory that I think you and I both are, are fans of is that Arya will return to Westeros via Justin Massey, who yeah. in the Theon sample chapter for the Winds of Winter is heading off to Bravos to collect cell swords to operate on behalf of Stannis. And then it's possible that Arya could take a ship with Justin Massey to get back to Westeros, and that is the way that she gets back. There is a second theory that's worth mentioning here, which is the idea that Arya will join up with Daenerys and her company when they get to you know, a place like Pentos in the Winds of Winter. Maybe she'll be like a faceless man. I've, I've heard a really dark version of this theory, which I don't subscribe to, but I think it's another theory worth mentioning. And that is that maybe Arya will murder Missande and take her name and take her face. And so she'll be like next to Daenerys, that sort of idea. I, I don't know. I that, that feels very dark. I mean, Arya's in a kind of a dark place in the Mercy chapter in the Winds of Winter. And we can imagine something like that continuing, like that sort of dark theme continuing on before Arya ends up redeeming herself, because I think that Arya will redeem herself from this darkness that she's currently in. Murdering Masande and taking her face seems really kind of grim dark to me, but I don't know. We'll see what, what George does with it. But I'm still a fan of the, the of Arya returning with, with Justin Massey. And I do agree that how much storyline, how much story are you going to fit into Arya's plot or story, so to speak, with the amount of with two books remaining in, in, in the Song of Ice and Fire canon. I, I, don't, I don't think you could do it, really. It's, it's really difficult. And yeah, I think the fact that Martin sends Justin Massey to Bravos potentially with, or at least having just met Jane Poole pretending to be Arya, that just strikes me as too strong a connection to be left completely unused. So I think at the very least, Arya will hear about Justin Massey and his mission and experience a shock at some other girl being called Arya Stark, and this will somehow be involved in her arc of returning yeah. home. Maybe that's what sparks her interest to go home and she actually does it via Daenerys' crusade. I could see that happening. Because, yeah, yeah there are connections here between Arya and Dragon Skulls and such, but we always have to keep in mind, as we've said ad nauseum, that certain bits of foreshadowing and groundwork in book one are never going to pay off because Martin has right. changed the story with his gardening style since. 
So this is also possibly an artifact of that. But Could be. to move on to events that do pay off, last week we referred to Eddard 14 as Ned's own Red Wedding, this shocking moment of horror and downfall and bloodshed. And it, that really struck me on rereading this chapter how much it feels paced out, like the Red Wedding from Arya's perspective mm-hmm. specifically, of in A Storm of Swords, how she gets so close to her family and she's trying to save her family. She's running past them, past the, their, their men who are dying. And, you know, she's trying to find safety, but she has to ultimately run for it. I feel like Martin really drew from this scene when he was writing Arya's chapters at the Red Wedding. Catelyn's chapters in the Red Wedding are their whole isolated, horrifying, beautiful yeah. thing that we'll get to when we get to them. But Arya's oh chapters, uh, Arya 10 and 11, I think, in A Storm of Swords, just feel very much like this chapter to me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that George exposes Arya to a lot of trauma throughout her arc. I mean, not just here, but we in Harrenhal itself, where she's witnessing the tortures that are going on there. That... Trauma is going to have an impact on her, but yeah, this is really Red Wedding-like in terms of all of the chaos unfolding and watching men die around her. And the other aspect, too, that's very similar to the Red Wedding is that she's never able to make it to Catelyn, to her mother. Here, she's never able to make it to Ned Stark. In, In this case, though, she consciously makes the decision not to go up the tower steps to the Tower of the Hand. Even though Ned's not up there at that point, he's he's in the throne room or he's in the dungeons then. Um, I, I do think that Martin plays on this motif and I think he does it really well in that Arya is ever so close but ever so far away from reaching out to her her siblings, to her family, to her father, to her mother. It's it's heartbreaking, man. It, it really, really is heartbreaking. Like when you see the amount of shit that Arya's had to experience and had to play a part in as well. And, and it's hard. It's, it's hard stuff like... I mean, she's nine. She's nine, right? Nine or ten at this at this point in the story, yep, at this juncture yep. of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all part of the tragic downfall of House Stark, as we were talking about last week. The the way it just tears out your heart, and as I said last week, makes you kind of desperately latch on to Rob as the potential savior figure when we get cut back to him in the Brand chapters. And that's why all the Stark siblings, when they're apart from Rob, always are always thinking, "I can be as brave as Rob, and Rob will kill you all, and I can be strong just like Rob," because Rob is right. the image in their head. An image in their heads of the Stark who's going to make it all correct, which is what makes it so devastating at the Red Wedding when his crusade finally fails and he can't make it all right. But as we were talking about uh, Daenerys a little earlier, there is also an interesting potential connection here between what Sirio says of Bravos and what Danny remembers of Bravos. Ah, uh, yes. Sirio Farrell and his discussion of the Sea Lord's Menagerie. So this is a interesting moment in in a game of thrones right where Sirio Farrell is explaining the back some of his backstory and how he became the first sea lord of bravos and one of the things he talks about is that the sea lord has a menagerie in his possession where he has all sorts of these crazy animals that he brings from all over the world to his little zoo and a menagerie for those who don't know it is is a zoo essentially um and the sea lord has all these 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 creatures these animals at the zoo so there is a theory that i am a big, big fan of. And um, there is also the fact. So let's start with the fact first. The fact is that the house with the red door is in Bravos. And stop coming up with the bad, ugly theories, guys. Just stop. Stop, stop, stop. Now, the theory side, more fun. So uh, the theory that I'm a big fan of is that the house with the red door is in Bravos, but it's in a specific place in Bravos, namely the Sea Lord's Palace. And the reason why I'm a fan of this theory is a couple reasons. One, you have the Sea Lord signing as a signatory for the pact for the Dornish Pact, 
with between Oberyn and Willem Derry, with the Sea Lords signing a signatory that is revealed in a, in a Dance of Dragons Daenerys Seven. And then secondly, and most importantly for this chapter, when Danny has her vision in the House of the Undying, she thinks this, and this is right after she sees Willem Derry. She fled from him, but only as far as the next door. I know this room, she thought. She remembered those great wooden beams and the carved animal faces that adorned them. Hmm. Keep that line in mind. And there, outside the window, a lemon tree. The sight of it made her heart ache with longing. It is the house with the red door. The house in Bravos. So, circling back to those lines. Great wooden beams and the... Great wooden beams. Ha. And the great wooden beams and the carved animal faces that adorn them. So, to me... I think that Sirio's discussion of the Sea Lord's Menagerie being a place where all the animals are kept and Daenerys's memory via the uh, via kind of hallucination at the House of the Undying of the great wooden beings with carved animal faces means that Daenerys is seeing part of the House of the Red Door being uh, either the Sea Lord's Palace itself or a building off of the Sea Lord's Palace that the Sea Lord Bravos had kept the, the Targaryen children at um, when he was safeguarding them. So I, I do think that's an interesting... A potential connection that we see between Daenerys and Bravos here that is really kind of brought well together when we get the House of the Undying vision and then flashing back to Sirio's description of the Sea Lord's Menagerie. Yeah, I like that theory quite a bit. As you say, it does fit with the Sea Lord being a witness to the marriage pact between Ariana and Viserys and so being involved in some level on Targaryen restoration. And because Arya is a POV there, and because we have this visual signifier of the Red Door, it would be the easiest thing to confirm. All you gotta do is have Arya run past some building on the Sea Lord's property and mention, oh, what a great Red Door she saw. It stood out in her, you know, that's, right. that's just the easiest thing to confirm and have every one of us losers online go, ah, ah, there's the proof we need. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the case at all. And Martin is going to drop this in passing when it comes to the Winds of Winter. I think it's a solid theory for sure. You know, one of the things that Arya talks about in A Dance with Dragons, when she's giving her, or is it a Feast for Crows or A Dance with Dragons? I can't remember which one it is. But one of her chapters, she talks about that the Sea Lord is sick and that the, the Bravos are sharpening their blades in preparation for the next coming election or the next mm -hmm. succession of power in Bravos. I can definitely see the faces men taking a certain interest in who the new sea Lord might be and potentially dispatching a, a girl with no name onto the sea Lord's palace up there to kind of, to get a look in on what's going on up at the palace itself. And I like your idea of like Arya, like running through and seeing, Oh, there's a house with the red door and moving on to this next thing. And like, exactly. all of us are going to lose our fucking minds. So it's going to be great. It's going to be so <laughs> great to see the wrongs prove wrong. But, you know, Emmett, I, I think, you know, the great thing about this chapter, and I know, like, we're all, like, getting emotional about Sirio and everything like that, but that's really because Martin is a huge trope smasher, right? He totally deceived us. He deceived everyone about the fate of Sirio Pharrell because Sirio is alive. He's alive, Emmett. Can you believe it? He's alive. Note the thrill coursing across my face. I feel like it's Christmas. Come again in February. And do you know who he is? Do tell, Jeff. Not only is he alive, but he's Quaith. My favorite Song of Ice and Fire character, Quaith of Ashai. What a what a beautiful Christmas gift this is to me, Jeff. Quaith. Can you believe it? He's Quaith of the No, I can't, in fact. 
So, of course, one of the more famous slash infamous tinfoil theories about A Song of Ice and Fire is the notion that Sirio Pharrell did not actually die here. And some variations of these theories characterize Sirio as being in truth a faceless man, the very one who later interacts with Arya under the name of Jock and Hagar in Harrenhal. Mm-hmm. Now, to give the bads and uglies their due day in court, as Stannis would wish of us, there are some points in favor. We do not actually see Sirio die in this chapter. George R. R. Martin is fond of the fake-out death. You would see that with Bran mm-hmm. at Winterfell. We see that with Davos at the Blackwater, uh, Sandor at the end of A Storm of Swords, Arya herself at the Red Wedding. There's that moment where it says Sandor's axe took her in their head, and you have no idea if she survived or not. So this is a thing Martin does. Sure, sure. Marin Trant is, as mentioned, a mediocre fighter at best. There is sure. the there is the Bravosi connection between Sirio and Jockin, as well as some themes in common between the mantras that they give Arya. That's true. And I mean, we also have two points where George was at conventions and people mm. point blank asked him, like, is Cyril Farrell alive? And he kind of sidestepped the question both times and was like, well, he's alive in, in the show because he was asked one of the times during season one. And then the other time, like, I think it's something like, is Cyril, someone asked him at a convention in 2010, like, is Cyril Farrell alive? And like the, the response that George apparently gave was like, he said nothing and then moved on <laughs> immediately to the next thing there. Sure, so, I mean, sure. like that. So that's obviously showing that, you know, Sirio is alive. Uh, he he could be Jack. And I mean, I, I'm still keeping my like, Quaith idea because I think like she's so mysterious and I love her so much. And I, I feel like that I love Sirio and I love Quaith. So I feel like Ergo. The same character. it's just it's Ergo. just like math. They just they just fit together. It's like putting a puzzle. So to, to counter that that position, I think oftentimes parallels between characters are interpreted as them literally being the same person when they're actually right. links in the same chain in terms of the POV that we see these characters through. Like, Mance is not Rhaegar, literally, right. just because Mance is also a bard and has the red and black coloring, etc. He's John's training f- wheels for Rhaegar. He's setting John up to deal with Rhaegar as his actual dad. Dario is not actually Euron. What he does is reveal the part of Daenerys that would be very much into Euron, that he's part of the Ark. I think only when something glaring and inexplicable happens, like Sir Maynard Plum vanishing mysteriously right when Blood Raven <laughs> turns up in the Mystery Night, only when something like that happens should we fall back on X character is actually Y character. And I don't think yeah. we see that here. Yeah, I think no, John can. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I, I think you're, you're you're right, and and to put my my cards on the table, I I, I don't think that Sarah was Jacken or, or Quaith. I mean, like like you say, I mean it's it's very much these kind of fake out deaths that we see is intended to be, it's not intended to be like their arcs are not over yet. When Arya Stark is struck by the the blunt yeah. axe head of Sandra Clegane, it doesn't like she, her arc is not over yet. Like Rob Stark and Catelyn's story was essentially over, though Catelyn's, of course, exists in, in another form, in, in some version, in the form of Stoneheart. But no, I, I totally agree with you there, that these characters are not, that Dario is not Euron, you know, Mance is not Rhaegar. Like, they have commonalities, sure, but their commonalities exist to show kind of a thematic throughput of different ideas that Martin is embedding into these POV characters and more, and and not just something like, ah, well, actually, after all, Mance was Rhaegar Targaryen. Like, boom, like, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, like, that, there's, there's... That requires a whole other book to explain that. Right. I don't need, I don't need that. I think, I think Jockin is meant to build on Sirio's teachings. It's all part of this connection within Arya's arc. He's meant to take the same basic ideas and twist them in strange and frightening ways. Like, the Faceless Man is a considerably darker mentor than the First Sword. Right. Like, Jockin gets Arya into some some 
difficult territory, and that reflects how Arya's story gets darker when she has to cross the T.S. Eliot wasteland that is the Riverlands at war. They're different steps on the same downward spiral stair, and we see Yorin and Sandor and the Brotherhood as a whole contribute to the same arc on Arya's part. There's, so there's the idea that, you know, Marin Trance, far too mediocre fighter to bring down Sirio. But as I've already addressed, I think that's the point. This is where Sirio's skills can't avail him, and so it becomes about his inner qualities, what he's bringing to the table in terms of his decisions. And I think if you look at the series as a whole, that kind of romantic death fits more than a sneaky escape. Like, there's that line Jorah has about Rhaegar fought valiantly, Rhaegar fought honorably, Rhaegar fought nobly, and Rhaegar died. And I think that's what happened here with Sirio Pharrell. As you were saying, Martin is fond of the fake-out death, but it's always with a character he has bigger plans for. Davos has to live after the Blackwater to rescue Edric Storm and Stannis' soul. Bran has to live past Blaster King so he can reach the innermost cave and complete his hero's journey. And Sandor, Martin is keeping him alive for some purpose. As he had Thoreau say, the Lord of Light is keeping Sandor alive for some reason, so we'll see what that is in the Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring. But Sirio Pharrell, I think the last stand is the point. Right. And I don't, I don't think I can explain this any better than a friend of the show, Stephen Atwell, did in his essay on Arya 4. Whoop, whoop. Quote, he gets to be the champion of right and the beauty of his craft and to save a child from imprisonment and possible death. He gets to go down swinging against impossible odds with a chance to humiliate one of the king's guard. He gets to become in the mind of one girl and any man who comes out of that room alive, a legend. Mm-hmm. Survival means that one day, Serial Frell's feet will lose their nimbleness. His sword arm will forget its strength, and he will likely die of old age, alone and unremembered. Mm-hmm. And that puts me in mind of Big Bucket's Big Bucket Wall's war monologue from A Dance with Dragons, talking about how he'd rather have his men go down swinging to save, in their minds, the same girl, Arya Stark, from the monstrous Ramsay, and how that's 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 meaningful and that's powerful and that's something better for them than just dying starving. But on the other hand, of course, that came only four chapters after Alaria Sands' peace monologue, talking about how we need to stop the cycle of violence, and that's equally beautiful written, and that's equally moving, albeit in the opposite direction. So yeah. I think finding the place where both of those perspectives can be true is part of the project of A Song of Ice and Fire, and thus part of the project of rereading it. And I think we have to make room for the fact that while the series generally looks at swordplay and violence and war is just horrible, nightmarish things that Sirio Pharrell's last stand is presented really romantically. And we have to, I think, recognize that and recognize that Sirio knew the consequences going in and faced them. I think that's what makes it powerful. It's, it also makes it powerful, too, that it was a sacrifice to save an innocence we talked about in the mm-hmm. main cast. I mean, Sirio Pharrell dying when he does is so powerful, not just because it you know, there's badass words. There's a great sword fight. It's so powerful because he is operating in such a manner to save the life of Arya Stark, to save her from captivity, whatever you, however you want to put it. The, the thing is, is that sacrifices have to matter. And it's a great point that you've brought up a, a couple times here in that what heroes do is not throw other people in the way uh, of danger. What heroes do is that they throw themselves into danger. And that's what Sir Pharrell did with a wooden fucking stick. And he took out five Lancer dudes and killed all of them, most likely, but ended up dying because Baron Trat, as mediocre as he is as a swordsman, is armored from head to heel. And he dies having saved Arya Stark's life. So to have him pop back up as Jack and Agar or Quaith of the Shadow, whatever fucking thing you want to, identity you want to throw upon him, really cheapens the sacrifice that Cyril Farrell makes and makes us go, Exactly. Mm-hmm. okay, that's, 
great. I mean, when you go back and you read a Game of Thrones, Arya four now published 23 years ago, nearly 23 years ago at this point, it would crush us. I mean, it would, it would be crushing if we read the winds of winter and suddenly Jack and Agar pulls his face off in, you know, feast for crows or not feast for crows, but in old town to Samuel Tarly. And it's like, ah, well actually I am the dancing master, Cyril Pharrell all along. And you're like, okay, great. Well, that means that what Cyril Pharrell did back in the Game of Thrones is meaningless. Cyril Pharrell's sacrificing of himself allows him to embed himself both in the reader's minds and also carries part of his personality along with him to the point where Arya in this chapter is hearing Cyril's voice. And that voice is just going to keep on going. And it only keeps on going because the sacrifice was made and the sacrifice matters for Arya Stark, and it matters that secret, and it matters that Ciro Pharrell died. My single favorite line in the entire series is probably "Men's lives have meaning, not their deaths." <laughs> From Quentin's chapter, "The Spurned Suitor in a Dance with Dragons," and I think you can see that with Ciro here because we don't need to see him die. We don't need to see him cut down by Marin Tramp because we see the moment that matters, and the moment that matters is him being willing to sacrifice it all, as you said, throwing himself on the line. In the same way, it matters that Davos has no guarantee of survival. When he sends Edric Storm off in a boat, he embraces the smuggler self inside him and knows that that might be the death of the Lord self because he's going up against Stannis and Stannis is not known for <laughs> forgiving people. Although he's, he's a little more flexible in that regard than his reputation suggests, as you've written about before, but that's neither here nor there. Same thing with, same thing with Brienne. She could easily have stayed in that farmhouse at the inn and let Rorge and his wrecking crew do what they want to those kids at the end, but she stepped out to throw her life on the line because she realized if I don't do that, then it doesn't mean anything that I want to be a true knight and go around and save princesses. Yep. It's meaningless if I find Sansa Stark, but I let these kids die. It will be a hollow victory. And you can see the same thing with Sirio here that he's like, yeah, I could run, but then who am I then? What's the right. meaning? What, what was it I was believing in all those decades? What will my life be if I run away now and let them take this child? And he makes that stand. And I mean, there's a reason we're calling this because that's what heroes do. That's what heroes do. Mm-hmm. And that's my... Yeah. That's my final statement on the chapter. Gosh darn it. Fuck yeah, man. So I think that about closes us out for this chapter. So thank you everyone for listening and for tuning in and watching us. It's really, it's touching. I mean, honestly, for for me, um, that you guys care uh, enough about Song of Ice and Fire, which is something that both Emmett and I love uh, enough to both listen to us as well as watch our stupid ugly faces as we talk about this chapter and see and you and you guys for those who are watching you get to see all the fuck-ups that we make and that we end up getting edited out in post-production which is great right i mean like you get to see how the sauces is actually made so you're gonna so if you guys are interested i know uh, we've gotten a few questions in the chat asking about whether this episode will be available on the regular podcast feed and yes it will be coming out on monday the 11th of february but as always thanks for listening rate and review us on itunes google play soundcloud podbean acast anywhere and everywhere you can find your podcasts absolutely you can hit us up at notacast asoiaf on twitter or shoot us an email at notacast asoiaf at gmail.com personally you can find me at poor quentin on twitter or at poorquentin.tumblr.com and you can find me at brennan beefish on twitter brennan beefish on reddit and my website as always is wars and politics of ice and fire dot wordpress dot com at least i think that's what the website is called sure <laughs> sure so thanks everyone for, for watching and listening to our episode on the Game of Thrones Aria 4. So thank you guys for listening so much. We'll see you guys, well, probably in two weeks now if you guys are watching this live, but if you're listening to this, we'll see you guys in a week for Game of Thrones Sansa 5. So thanks Sansa 4, not to correct my dear co-host, but yes, we... Fuck, so close, so close, buddy, but 
Oh, oh that's we right, will, yeah. We will see uh, the dad's downfall from the POV of the other Sark sister in Sansa 4. So thank you. As, as Jeff said, thank you so much for listening and watching. We really hope you enjoyed it. We will be repeating this experiment every quarter going forward for the rest of our natural lives. Thank you so much. <laughs>